0: Let's get started with a word of prayer. Let's, let's bow and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day uh, that you have made. We thank you for the great privilege it is to gather as the body of Christ. Uh, we th- I thank you so much for this particular body of Christ at Hope Bible Church and for the people that you've called together to be brothers and sisters and to, uh, and to exercise the spiritual gifts that you've bestowed on each and every one through your Holy Spirit in order to uh, serve one another and to bring glory to your name. We thank you for your word, Lord, where you reveal yourself and your plan of redemption through history. Uh, we thank you particularly for this book of revelation that we're studying now which tells us about the end times we thank you lord that you are sovereign over every inch of your creation for every second from beginning to end we thank you for the great love that you showed for each and every one of us in sending christ to live as a man a sinless life to die on the cross a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins we thank you that you raised him from the dead and we thank you that he ascended into heaven and sits at your right hand we thank you for all of those things in christ's precious name amen Amen. Okay. okay so here we are on part 15 in our study Um, which is the second part of the second quarter. So we had 13 parts in the first quarter. Uh, We're going to have 13 parts in the second quarter. We're going to have 13 more parts in the third quarter. Um, I will be here next Sunday, but the Sunday after that I won't be. Um, I will be in Akron, Ohio, uh, celebrating my parents' 60th wedding anniversary. Uh, So I I won't be here... um, The 24th. And so I'm looking for somebody to volunteer to come and teach on the 24th. Um, And that will be about the tribulation saints. Um, So today, we're going to learn about the the fifth and the sixth seal today. So the fifth seal, prayers for vengeance. We're going to see who these persons are that are under the altar, that are making these prayers. We're going to look at the particular petition that they make to the Lord. And we're going to look at the promise that the Lord makes back to these... Uh, people that are under the altar, and then we're going to look at the sixth seal. We're going to look at the sixth seal that's going to talk about. Uh, it's going to be. Uh, it's going to present this palpable fear, of the wrath that's being poured out and, and the wrath that's to come. We're going to look at the reason for fear, the range of that fear, and the reaction, of fear from that sixth seal. So the fifth and the sixth seals. But first, a little review. So last week we did uh, the first part of chapter 6, which is the first four seals. Today we're going to do the, the last half of chapter 6, which is this fifth and sixth seal. Um, and so last time we saw these first four seals. Uh, so the Father, if you remember, had given the title deed to the earth, uh, to the Lamb, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he proceeds to break... And there's seven seals on this uh, this scroll. And he proceeds to break each one of the seven seals. And so the first one he breaks. And then there's uh, four living creatures there. And one by one, each of the living creatures uh, says, Come, and a horse comes out with a rider on it. And so the first one is a white horse. Uh, and that, that white horse has a person on it that brings a false peace. Uh, and so these four horses and riders... Um, sometimes referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse you may hear that term Uh, he has a bow but no arrows he has a crown that's given to him not his uh, um, intrinsically and he's going to be conquering with kind of bloodless victories that bring this appearance of peace And then the second horse comes, and the kind of this false peace is shattered. Uh, The second horse um, is a fiery red one and has another rider on there. And um, the fiery red one depicts uh, fire and blood and war. And so there's a short-lived false peace followed by war. Um, And it's granted to the rider of the second horse to take peace from the earth. Uh, So that's war. Um, And so Jesus, uh, we've been kind of following along and we'll continue to do this. Jesus in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 uh, revealed to his disciples many of the same events that are revealed here in the book of Revelation. And Jesus said this to his disciples, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars nation will rise against nation kingdom against kingdom that's matthew 24 in the olivet discourse and so here in revelation it says men will slay one another and it's on a gigantic scale Um, there's a great sword that he has that uh that depicts the size and scale uh of this this great war um, that follows in the the footsteps of the false peace of the antichrist so the Antichrist has has kind of uh, accrued political power, uh, and then there's a there's a big war that uh, that shatters the peace. But he's involved in that as well. Um, there are descriptions of the Antichrist in the Old Testament prophecies as well. Um, So Antichrist setting up the abomination of desolation, for example, is in Daniel 11 and 12. and Matthew 24, Jesus mentions it again, uh, which touches off a massive conflict described in great detail in Daniel chapter 11. And so we read through that passage in Daniel chapter 11 last week, which gives a description of that massive conflict. Uh, then there's a third seal and a third horse and a a third person on the horse third rider on the horse and this is a famine and once again in the olivet discourse jesus talked about the famine Um, various places will be famines so there's a pair of scales uh, which depicts um, the measuring the careful uh, uh, kind of rationing of food And there's a voice that comes from the center of the four living creatures that talks about uh, this famine that uh, a quart of wheat which is barely enough to sustain sustain one person goes for a whole day's wages so people are just barely able to uh, just get by if they spend all of their wages on food so nothing on clothing nothing on shelter all of their wages have to go to food and that's just barely to maintain a survival diet Uh, for one person and so, what happens if you have a family? Then there's a fourth seal, uh, fourth living creature, uh, fourth horse, fourth rider. Uh, this one's an ashen or a pale horse. The 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 Greek word there is a kind of a sickly greenish yellow color, um, and the name of the rider is Death. Um, and so, and and Hades follows along, and uh, a fourth of the population of the earth is killed uh, by. Uh, war, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. And so um, according to the UN, we just crossed eight billion people on the earth. And so a quarter of that would be two billion deaths. Uh, So that's quite a few. Uh, and So this is a massive worldwide uh, disaster that's depicted here. And so that's the first four seals. Uh, Any questions about the first four seals before we dive into seal number five and seal number six today. Anybody? All right. So if you open your Bibles to... Wait. uh, Yeah. Uh, Revelation chapter six. We're going to start in verse nine today. Uh, Revelation chapter six, starting in verse nine and going through verse 17. So this is the word of the Lord. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal... I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed as they had been would be completed also. I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains and they said to the mountains and to the rocks fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand so this is the word of the Lord and things are really getting serious now if they weren't serious before Now it's really getting bad. So uh, a little bit from the introduction from uh, MacArthur's commentary on this section of Scripture. He says, MacArthur says, While Scripture reveals that God is loving, merciful, and gracious, a Savior of sinners, one truth about him that is decidedly unpopular today is that he is a God of vengeance against those who reject him and salvation in his Son. The Bible repeatedly affirms that to be the case. In Deuteronomy 32, 35, God declared, Vengeance is mine and retribution. In several psalms, known as the imprecatory, from the verb imprecate, meaning to call down calamity on someone, psalms, the psalmists cry out for God to take vengeance on the wicked. One such passage is found in Psalm 64, where David says of the wicked that God will shoot at them with an arrow Suddenly they will be wounded, so they will make him stumble. Their own tongue is against them. All who see them will shake the head. Then all men will fear, and they will declare the work of God, and will consider what he has done. Psalm 79 reads, Let there be known among the nations in our sight vengeance for the blood of your servants which has been shed. Psalm 94 the psalmist prayed, O Lord God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. He has brought back their wickedness upon them and will destroy them and their evil. The Lord our God will destroy them. So pretty harsh, uh, imprecatory psalms uh, are there in in God's word. Um, And then further, one of the central prophetic themes in scripture is the coming of the final day of God's wrath, known as the day of the Lord. While well, it's true that God is angry with the wicked every day, Psalm 7, the day of the Lord is an expression used to describe periods when God specially intervenes in human history for judgment. The phrase day of the Lord appears 19 times in the Old Testament and four times in the New It is a unique time when God's power and holiness are unveiled, bringing terror and death to his enemies. The prophets describe the day of the Lord as destruction from the Almighty, Isaiah 13 and Joel 1, a time of fury and burning anger, Isaiah 13, a time of doom, Ezekiel 30, great and very awesome, Joel 2, and darkness and not light, Amos 5. The phrase the day of the Lord is not limited to future final wrath, but sometimes refers to imminent historical judgments which occurred during Old Testament history. Isaiah 13, Ezekiel 30, Joel 1, Amos 5, Obadiah 11, Zephaniah 1. So these historical day of the Lord judgments were usually preceded by some preliminary judgments of lesser severity. They acted as warnings by providing sample previews of the far more devastating judgments to come when the day actually arrived. And then MacArthur gives an example of that. So in Joel chapter 1, 2, and 3, um, in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, he describes the final eschatological day of the Lord, the, the end times. But the sequence leading up to that day is very informative. Joel 1 describes an actual locust plague that came on Judah. Uh, This was a preview of the near historical day of the Lord to come on Judah in the future Babylonian invasion, which is discussed in Joel chapter 2. This historical day of the Lord invasion was also a preview of the ultimate eschatological day discussed in 2.28-32. So you see what he's saying there? Chapter 1, 2, and the beginning of 3 in Joel, it describes three things. It describes an actual plague of locusts that was happening in his day. It also prophesies The day of the Lord coming on Judah when Babylon came and took them away uh, into captivity in 586 B.C. And then it goes on to describe the day of the Lord in the end times. All three of those things are in that section of Joel. A judgment that was happening when Joel was writing a judgment that was about to happen that's described as the day of the Lord, and then also the day of the Lord in the end times. All three of those things are in that that passage of Joel. Uh, Okay, so other times the phrase day of the Lord refers directly to God's final judgment at the end of human history, and there's many scriptures that refer to that as well. And so uh, just to take a step back, um, I mentioned this at the very beginning that Uh, not everybody agrees about how to interpret uh, the prophecies in the book of Revelation. And so there are these four major schools of thought, the historicist, preterist, futurist, and idealist, and they interpret each of the different passages in Revelation in different ways. And so these seals, for example, just to go back to this and show you, the historicists believe that the seals are the stages of church history. Uh, roughly from the 1st century A.D. to the 4th. Uh, the Preterists believe that the seals described the Roman War with the Jews leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. The Futurists believe the seals begin to describe the Great Tribulation with each seal leading to greater tragedy upon the earth. And the idealist believes the seals are about recurring evils throughout history and God's authority over them. So that's the the different major schools and how they interpret this chapter 6 that we're on. And what we believe and teach is the futurist point of view, and so that's what uh, we've been going through, these seals as judgments during the the Great Tribulation. Uh, But I think you should be aware that there are others out there that uh, that have a different interpretation. Um, I think that interpretation is mistaken for many reasons, but there are really... Uh, Good and godly people are brothers and sisters in Christ who see this differently. I just want to make sure you're aware of that. Uh, So verse by verse as we go through this. um, Verse 9. So the Lamb breaks the fifth seal. He sees under the altar these souls. So John's watching this. He sees well there's some, what appears what what are just, what John describes as souls of those who have been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. So the fifth seal, to place it into context, is about the midpoint of the tribulation. So the tribulation is seven years. It's got three and a half years of tribulation and three and a half years of the great tribulation. And that's what we're going to launch into here. We're going from the fifth seal to the sixth seal. We're going from the three and a half years of tribulation to the great tribulation, the second half of it. Uh, the full fury is, re- is revealed in the second half. Um, and so we, have the f- the, we had the four horsemen of the first seals, and they were kind of forces. Like one was death for example. Not a particular person, but death itself. Uh, death personified there. Um, and this fifth one uh, is also a force. It's the prayers of God's saints for him to exact vengeance on rebellious mankind. Um, and so as with the first four seals, we have the Lamb, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, breaking this fifth seal. Another sequence in the unfolding judgment. So we've had judgment after judgment after judgment, and now this is uh, the breaking of another seal, and we see underneath the altar. Alter the souls of those who have been slain and so these are martyrs who were killed during these judgments so we've had three and a half years already and during these three and a half years there have been saints that have been killed um, and so here here they are they're under the altar uh, so remember the church was raptured before it even started uh, so it's not them it's not the church it's those who had been killed during these judgments. Uh, so these are tribulation saints who have been martyred. Uh, yes. Uh, thinking back to when we had the persecuted church and the martyrs, there's martyrs even today. Oh yes. Will, will they be I don't think that's what this is. I think this is those who have been because the, the, those martyrs who have been killed before this will be raptured with the church. Uh, so they're, they're separate. They're raptured with the church. But these are souls who haven't received their um, uh, glorified bodies yet who have been killed by these people who were still down there alive. And so that's what they're saying. When are you going to take vengeance on these people who have just killed us during this three-and-a-half-year period? Um, so that's these, these martyrs there. Uh, So there's been this period where the Antichrist takes political power. There's great persecution uh, occurring, and and many martyrs are made uh, during this time. Um, So there's widespread persecution of believers led by Satan, his demons, and the final Antichrist. And it's led to all these martyrs. Um, So the world's hostility toward Christ, of course, will not be able to prevent the gospel of the kingdom from being preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations. uh, Jesus said that during the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. In spite of all these persecutions, the gospel is going to continue to go out. Souls will continue to be won into the kingdom uh, in spite of this great persecution that, that, uh, that goes on, that, that takes place during this, this tribulation period. So not only are things really bad uh, in terms of uh, wars and famines and pestilence and all this death, but there's also intense persecution leading to all these martyrs, and yet we still see the gospel going forth and many souls being won to Christ during this time. Uh, yes, So good question. Who's preaching the gospel? The preachers will include the 144,000 Jewish evangelists and uh, that are talked about in both chapter 7 and chapter 14. We have two powerful preachers known as the two witnesses who are described in chapter 11. We have an angel flying through the sky in chapter 14 proclaiming the gospel. And so we have descriptions of all these people that are proclaiming the gospel. Um, but um, it's not limited, I don't think, to just these Uh, peculiarly powerful ones Um, and so uh, if you think about um, how can somebody be saved Um, so the church is raptured but Do all the Bibles evaporate when the church is rapture? I don't think so. I don't think there's any indication that all the Bibles go away. And so the Bibles are all still there. God's Word is still there. So people can still read the Word. And the Word is powerful enough to to, to save people. Um, And so I think there will be people that are saved just by reading the, the book. But there's also, in particular... Um, these witnesses that are described uh, in other places in revelation which we haven't got to yet but yes go ahead but is, is this all happening in the second <coughs> isn't the supposed to not that the second half of the revelation but the martyrs? I think most most likely yes and so I think that yes we, we have probably so how did the very first one come about so my guess is the very first one came about from from reading the scripture and the holy spirit working on somebody's heart from reading the scripture that's my my guess now the other part is um, there are certainly unconverted preachers of the word think about that Um, i'm reading a biography of famous preachers from uh, the 1700s in England and several of those famous preachers were, were actually preachers ordained preachers with a pastorate before they were saved and, and that's their own testimony that they became saved after they were pastors with with a church and so um, a person like that would not be raptured a person that was a, a pastor that's not saved, um, but he's preaching the word. Right? He's, he's doing church every Sunday and preaching the word. Uh, and that person wouldn't be raptured. And so there would still be that going on. Uh, there would still be churches here with people in them including pastors is my belief because i've seen that through history and of pe- their own testimony that yes i was a pastor and i was not saved yeah so anyway, but the description is that there's a great multitude that no one can count who eventually come in during the tribulation during the, the seven-year uh, tribulation Uh, So John describes these martyrs he saw underneath the the altar as souls because their bodily resurrection had not yet taken place. That will be in Revelation chapter 20. They are the first fruits of those who will be saved throughout the tribulation. Uh, So that's who these people are. Uh, He gives two reasons why they were slain. One is because of the word of God. And the second, because of the testimony which they had maintained. In other words, they remained faithful even to death. They maintain their testimony of Christ even to being martyred. Um, So they will correctly interpret what they see going on around them. So this is during the tribulation um, in the world in light of scripture. They will proclaim from the Bible God's judgment and call on people to repent and believe the gospel. Uh, Antichrist and his followers will not tolerate their bold preaching and will persecute and kill them. Uh, because of the testimony which they maintained refers to their loyalty to Jesus Christ which was demonstrated by their proclamation of the word of God in the face of life-threatening hatred and hostility. So we have a world that's that's, uh, having the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit withdrawn and merciless men will murder those who faithfully and courageously proclaim the message of judgment and salvation. So that's what's going on here. And so we're piling up martyrs in heaven during this first half of the tribulation so the fifth seal itself of course is not the martyrdom uh, because uh, martyrdom can't be a judgment from god being killed for maintaining faithfulness to christ is not something that god does he doesn't kill people for remaining faithful to him um, yes, so that's not what the fifth seal judgment is about. Uh, the seals depict God's wrath and judgment on the evil and godly, not his children. Uh, the force then that is involved in the fifth seal is the prayers of the tribulation martyrs for God to enact vengeance on their Christ-rejecting murderers. Prayer will play a vital role in the outpouring of God's judgment on the earth. This prayer is very different from the one that the martyr Stephen. Remember Stephen in Acts chapter 7, he's being stoned to death, and he, he cries out to God not to hold it against them, uh, to, not, to, not to hold them guilty for his murder. Well, this is different. Uh, this is more like the imprecatory Psalms. Um, a prayer for pardon is appropriate during a time of grace like Stephen's day. But when grace is finished and judgment comes, prayers for divine holy retribution are fitting. Uh, such prayers are not from a desire for revenge, but are a protest against all that is sinful, unholy, dishonoring to God, and destructive of his, of his creation. So they want um, to see the world cleansed of ungodliness and unholiness. That's their perspective. So his hand of judgment will move in response. So um, in response to the martyrs, because of their prayers, will be urgent, fervent, impassioned, and consistent with his will. That's the key, consistent with with his will. If we ask anything in accordance with his will, he gives it to us. And so if they're praying in accordance with his will, of course he's going to do what's consistent with his will. Uh, This Greek word kradso, cried out, this is a very strong word. Uh, emphasizing urgent need and denotes very strong emotion um, so if you look back to chapter 5 we saw the 24 elders and the angels loudly praising God and now we have the tribulation m- martyrs with a petition with a loud voice and so in keeping with their call for vengeance and justice they address him they address the Lord as Lord holy and true Uh, Now, the word uh, translated Lord here is not kurios, which is the typical New Testament word for Lord. It's a much stronger Greek word, despotes, which means master or ruler, uh, from which we get the English word despot. Um, And so a despot is an absolute ruler, ruler, judge, jury, and executioner from whom there is no appeal. And when that kind of power resides in a fallen human being it's not good but when that kind of authority rests in the perfectly righteous and holy god of the universe it is good that he's the judge jury and executioner from whom there is no appeal Uh, and that's the word that's used here despotes Um, so it speaks of the god the father's might power majesty and absolute authority And it also describes him, uh, uses two of his attributes. Uh, Holy. Uh, So because God is holy, he must judge sin. Perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, can't be in the presence of sin, must judge sin. And because he is true, he must be faithful to his word and keep his promises. And so that's how they describe him. Lord, holy and true. The martyr's question, how long? Will you refrain from judging? So judgment is coming, but how much longer is it going to be? Uh, It doesn't reflect a personal vendetta on their part. They're not trying to tell God what to do or when to do it. They're asking him the question because they have a holy desire to see Satan and Antichrist destroyed and, and their iniquity defeated and the wicked judged and Christ reigning in glory on the earth. They're anxious for what's to come the glorious reign of Christ on the earth. How much longer is it going to be until we get to see that, is what they're they're asking. Uh, it's a well-known cry of suffering Israel, uh, reflected in um, questions of the righteous, uh, that uh, how long will their pain last? We see that in the Psalms in a, in a couple of different places. Uh, the phrase that's here, uh, those who dwell on the earth, it's a technical one, which refers all the way throughout this book to the ungodly. It's in... Revelation chapter 3, chapter 8, chapter 11, chapter 13, chapter 17, it always means uh, the ungodly. That's those who dwell on the earth. That's what that phrase means here. And so what, what do we see here? We see the time of grace nearing its end. So uh, God has been patient with mankind for millennia now. He's been patient with sinful mankind and has been showing grace. Uh, by delaying this day of judgment well that, that period of grace and delayed judgment is coming to an end uh, no longer do God's people ask God to forgive their enemies like we saw with Stephen the time is fast approaching when God will judge his enemies and the Lord Jesus Christ will take his rightful place as earth's ruler but since these martyrs are from the first half of the tribulation the beginning of birth pangs That time is still a little way off. So it's not quite yet. So it's been three and a half years of tribulation and martyrs. And uh, the answer then to the question is not quite yet. Uh, And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed. So not quite yet. When when is it that you're going to... take your final vengeance, Uh, justice will prevail on earth, the second coming of the Lord, Jesus reigning on earth. When is that coming? The answer is not quite yet. Uh, Two elements make up God's response to these martyrs, a symbolic gift and a spoken word. And so the gift is a white robe. Uh, Stale, is a long robe flowing to the feet. So a, a robe that goes all the way down to your feet, a long flowing robe of white they each get. It's a reward for grace. It's a symbol of God's gift of eternal righteousness, blessedness, dignity, and honor. Uh, we saw that in, uh, in chapter 3 as well. And so along with this gift that they each get, they each get a white robe, and they also get this uh, spoken word from God that they should rest for a little longer. Just rest, just wait. Uh, the, the the final judgment is coming, but not quite yet. And so he says, just wait a little bit longer. Uh, and this is not a rebuke. Uh, impatience is a sin, and and these are people that are uh, that are um, that have been martyred in the Lord and are up there with Him in heaven. So um, they're not sinning. Uh, it's an invitation to stop the cry for vengeance and to continue to enjoy the bliss of heavenly rest until God's time for wrath arrives. Um, So the the phrase a little while longer indicates that the time will not be long delayed. So just a few more years. So this is about halfway through the tribulation. So we just got uh, three and a half short years. Uh, This uh, seal is describing a period in the middle of the seven year tribulation. Uh, So God's day of judgment is about three and a half years in in the future. Uh, Not not far from a a historical perspective. Just this short little period of time. In fact, in one place, it's it's uh, it's measured in days—1,200 and something days. Yeah. um, I do. Uh, yes, uh, I believe the persecution will continue and continue to <laughs> have martyrs through the the whole seven years. The, this is halfway through, and there is a big pile of martyrs there, but there is going to be more. Yeah, and so and that's what uh, the Lord is actually saying to them that you are going to. There is going to be more of you. There is going to be uh, you got to wait till the number of the fellow servants and their brethren who are to be killed will be completed. Also, so yeah, so God God is telling them here that there will be more martyrs. In the, the martyrs like them that are killed like them for the re- same reasons they were killed for their faithfulness to Christ in the second half. Uh, so the Sixth Seal is really bad. We're just about to do the Sixth Seal for the rest of this class, and it's bad. Um, and then the seventh seal, which contains the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Uh, so, yes, it's, it's been bad for the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And then we get the great tribulation, uh, the last three and a half years, where it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Yes. Yep. <clears throat> so, uh, God sovereignly predetermined the exact number of those who would be killed. Uh, the petitioners were told to enjoy heaven's rest until that number had been reached and so what do we see we see a world uh, that is not enlightened humane or civilized enough to avoid repeating the atrocities of the past so we've seen atrocities in uh, in our lifetime Uh, we've seen Uh, Mass murders. We've seen. uh, We've got the historical record of the Holocaust. We've got the historical record of um, of the the killing fields in Cambodia. We've we've got these historical records and eyewitness accounts of really awful uh, uh, atrocities being committed. Um, And it's October seventh. October seventh. We saw. Yes, we saw. uh, You know. People just discriminately, indiscriminately murdering and raping and killing men, women, and children. We, we saw that. We, we continue to see that, and it will continue. Uh, and as this period of the tribulation, as the restraining force, so God restrains evil, so it's, it's not as bad as it could be. Well, that kind of that restraining force is kind of withdrawn during the tribulation to a certain extent. So that things get are starting to get as bad as they could get. Um, and so yes, there will be atrocities. Uh, supernatural, God's supernatural restraint on sin removed, and the forces of hell running rampant. Uh, the slaughter of that time will be without precedent in human history. So it'll be worse than we've seen. And yet. Out of those dark days will come thousands who sealed their testimony for the Word of God and the Lordship of Jesus Christ with their own blood. We've got these martyrs already in the first three and a half, and we've got this um, this prophecy from the Lord that there will be more uh, in the last three and a half years. Um, So that's the fifth seal. Then we get to the sixth seal. So uh, verse twelve starts on the sixth seal. I looked when He broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind so uh this yes go ahead do you think that's, you think that's literal so we'll talk about that we'll talk about what these uh, symbols mean uh hold that question for just a second so there is a description of the day of the Lord in First Thessalonians chapter 5. It says, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they were saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. So God has not chosen to disclose the precise time of the final day of the Lord or the return of Jesus Christ. So Jesus himself said that in Matthew chapter 24 in the Olivet Discourse. Nobody knows the the day or the hour. Uh, Also Acts chapter 1. So even those alive during the tribulation will not know the precise time that the day of the Lord will begin. Uh, Lying deceivers will scoff at the idea that Christ will return demanding mockingly where is the promise of his coming for ever since the fathers fell asleep all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation 2nd Peter chapter 3 uh, the 2nd Peter chapter 3 is about the end times and the second coming of Christ and Peter says that even up to the very right before Christ comes there's going to be these scoffers are saying hey where's this coming he he talked about Um, and so that's going to continue even during the tribulation so this sixth seal introduces the arrival of the day of the Lord, calling it the great day of wrath. It's associated with a force. Once again, that force is fear, a feeling which is among the most powerful of human emotions, capable of seizing control of the mind and the will. Uh, fear, intense fear. And that's, that's gonna, that just uh, really leaps out from this description here, intense fear. People fear all kinds of things, but rarely what they ought to fear most uh, Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. People fear all kinds of things. And many times they, f- they miss this, the one that they should really fear. And that's Jesus' point here. People fear all kinds of stuff. But I'll tell you who you really should fear. You should fear the one who has the authority to cast you into hell. And one day people will have this consuming, debilitating, uncontrollable fear of the judgments of the living God as they see them uh, unfolding. Uh, And describing that day, Jesus in Luke 21 said, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. So Jesus is saying, there's going to be a day coming where people start to see the unfolding wrath of God and judgment of God, and there will be intense fear. Fainting from fear, Jesus says. So unlike the first five seals, which in one way or another uh, um, involved a human figure, some kind, you know, a horse with a rider, or all these uh, souls under the altar, the sixth seal, God acts alone. Nothing else. There's no horse, there's no rider, there's no uh, saints under the altar. It's just God acting, which is the scariest one of all. Uh, by the time that this seal is opened, we've passed the midpoint of the Tribulation. The world is in the final three and a half years of the period, uh, known as the Great Tribulation um, that uh, Jesus revealed in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Uh, so by then, the final Antichrist has desecrated the temple, the abomination of desolation. Uh, the world worships him, and a massive persecution of Jews and Christians has broken out uh, as we get into the second half of the tribulation. Uh, Speaking of that time, Jesus said, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah, for as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. That's Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. And so in spite of all these things, people are trying to go on with their lives as if nothing's happened. That's what Jesus is saying here. So in spite of all these things we've seen, people are, are you know, going to work and trying to live their lives as if nothing's happening. And they're not recognizing what's happening. That's what Jesus is saying here, even during the tribulation. Uh, so the warnings of the events, of the first five seals then go, have gone unheeded by many. Uh, But the events of the sixth steel are so devastating and terrifying that they will be attributable only to God. And so wars have happened. We've got all this record of history of war. So we've got a war also. It's a really big war, but we've had wars before. Uh, There's a really big famine. Well, we've had famines before. Uh, There's a pestilence. Well, we've had COVID before. Um, So all these things we've had before uh, in these first seals but now some things start to happen that are unprecedented um, and are attributable finally attributable to god's action uh, god taking action so we've seen in the previous seals uh, a parallel sequence uh, in jesus olivet discourse in matthew 24 uh, so the lord described the events associated with the sixth seal as well in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, so after the first three and a half years, um, uh, the Lord, uh, so uh, this is Jesus, uh, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And so Jesus told his disciples about these things in Matthew chapter 24 and they're also revealed just like this in Revelation chapter 6. The same things. Jesus mentioned them before. Now they're being revealed to John uh, in more detail. But they're the same things that Jesus revealed to his disciples in Matthew 24. Now, the Old Testament also spoke of some of these natural disasters in connection with the day of the Lord. So the prophet Joel, we mentioned before, uh, Joel said this, Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. That's from Joel chapter 2. Um, and so this is a description all the way back in the Old Testament of these events as well yeah so a good question so um, if you read this Joel chapter 1 he's talking about something that's happening in the present it's in the present tense he writes it in the present tense there's a plague of locusts uh, so that one's clear then when he talks about uh, the disaster that's coming on Judah um, we, we, if you read your whole Bible through you see that at that time that hadn't happened yet and so that's definitely a prophecy of something that's about to happen but we get a further description of that later on in scripture of the Babylonian captivity of Judah taken away to Babylon in 586 BC so Joel's writing before that and so that's a prediction of something that's a it's going to happen and it's not in the far future it's in the near future as we read through our scripture then he's got a description of the the something that's After that, so then he talks about another day of the Lord. After he talks about those things, and so that probably was a great mystery to those who were reading it at the time. What is he talking about? When is he talking about? Um, And so the only way to really understand it, I think, is to look at the whole council of Scripture. Now you've got not only the Book of Joel, but also you have the Book of Daniel that talks about the seventy weeks and there's a 70th week that's coming uh, Ezekiel and his prophecies yeah, I think you have to put it together all together and and further we don't really get a uh, the full understanding of this this picture until we get to the book of Revelation so it's like progressive revelation It's progressive revelation exactly okay. and so there was it was it has been revealed over a millennium what's going to happen in these end times Part of it in the book of Joel. Thank you. Yeah, mm-hmm. good question. Um, and so J- Joel talks about you know the sun going dark and the moon going dark and earthquakes uh, in Joel chapter two. Um, and so the first thing that happens is there's a great earthquake. Um, of course there have been many earthquakes in recorded history and there will be more during the first half of the tribulation so there's no reason to believe there aren't ordinary earthquakes during the three and a half years of the first tribulation but this is not an ordinary earthquake this is a great earthquake cataclysmic event that God, John sees in the sixth seal is a powerful devastating earthquake um Yes? Wasn't the flood also considered like an earthquake, per se? So uh, we don't know exactly what the breaking up of the fountains of the Great Deep is, but I think um, my speculation is that that was a lot of geologic activity involved with the breaking up of the fountains of the Great Deep for many reasons, uh, biblical reasons, but also scientific reasons. There's, there's you know, the, the moon is in... Um, um, a gravitational lock and so the same side of the moon always faces the earth well the side of the moon that faces the earth has got craters all over it well how does that happen uh, how do you get craters on the side of the moon that only faces the earth w- where did the things come from that made those craters that had to come from the earth right that had to come from the earth because it's in it's in gravitational lock and there's only one that face always faces the the earth and it's got craters all over it and so um what event in the in the earth history was was uh, a great great geological activity that could have spewed stuff that went all the way up and smashed into the moon the breaking up of the fountains of the great deep so i think that was massive geologic activity yeah uh yeah at the time of the flood but that's a speculation and you know, the, the bible did, all the bible says is the breaking up of the fountains of the great deep Um, But yeah, so this is a great earthquake, not an ordinary earthquake. Uh, There have been many ordinary earthquakes, this is not one of them. Um, And so people are frightened by this earthquake. Uh, But fears caused by earthquakes will be much greater than those caused by previous earthquakes, because this is a great earthquake, not an ordinary earthquake. Um, the people that are alive are going to be afraid. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of people killed. So, and remember what? When this is coming, it's coming after all these troubles: worldwide war, devastating famine, epidemics of disease, two billion people dead. So, already a quarter of the people of the earth are dead, and now comes this massive earthquake, uh, that's that's you know kind of unlike anything they've ever seen before. Um, so the Christ is being worshipped as God. He set himself up as um, a God and his false prophet will be proclaiming utopia at, is at hand. In an instant, however, the lie of Satan is exposed and the world's false hopes are shattered by the violent shaking of the very earth under their feet. Um, so an earthquake after the earthquake we have something else we have the sun becoming black as sackcloth made of hair sackcloth was a rough cloth worn by mourners usually made from the hair of black goats and so following the violent earthquake the sun will turn as black as a mourner's robe the prophet Joel spoke of these same phenomena in connection with the day of the Lord the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes Joel 2.31 It's also described by Jesus in Matthew 24, as we mentioned, in Mark 13 and Luke 21. So that's two disasters, an earthquake, the sun going dark. The third disaster is the whole moon became like blood. So how does that happen? Um, So, uh, geologic, uh, if you apply some kind of uh, geologic principles to a massive earthquake that's so big uh, that it's unlike other earthquakes, Um, that's massive shifting of tectonic plates Um, that kind of shifting of uh, tectonic plates is most likely to uh, also involve volcanic activity Uh, we saw that certainly with the flood there's massive volcanic activity in the geologic record which can only have happened during the flood so most likely volcanic activity and so what happens when you put massive amounts of ash into the air Um, it gets cool but it also uh, blots out the sun and makes the moon either blotted out or reddish tinged so ash and smoke eclipsing the sun and coloring it blood red as it attempts to pierce the smoke darkened sky And then out of the darkened sky, we have the stars of the sky fell to the earth. And so this is an answer to the question, well, how literal do we take this? Are stars coming to the earth? Uh, The Greek word there is asteris. Uh, Its general translation is stars, and it can refer to actual stars. But it also describes, in the Greek language, any heavenly body other than the sun and moon. So anything you see up in the sky that's a light, other than the sun and the moon, is asterisk. And it's from this Greek word we get the word asteroid, actually, asteris. Um So asteroids would be included in this thing that's translated stars here. And so obviously in this context, it doesn't refer to actual stars. Actual stars are far too large to fall to the Earth and would incinerate it long before they struck it. Uh, So it can't be actual stars. Wouldn't it just be a meteor shower? So, I think so. Also, notice that in um, Revelation chapter 8, which we haven't got to, in the fourth trumpet judgment, the stars are still up there. So it can't be the actual stars falling to the earth. Most likely references to asteroid and meteor showers, which would definitely use this Greek word, asterisk to describe them. Um, so, asteroid and meteor showers bombarding the Earth. Uh, modern experts, bel- experts believe that the impacts of asteroids and meteors striking the Earth would be devastating and cause unprecedented destruction. And so that fits. I think that all fits. So we're, we're talking about massive meteor showers that are hitting the Earth. Meteors that are not just shooting stars that we see all the time that burn out in the atmosphere, but lots of them that actually make it to the Earth and hit so uh, these kind of things just seem to be building um, and so we go from one disaster to the next and um, it doesn't say you no know, how long the, the sun's going to be dark or how dark it is or what's causing it to be dark so there's still some speculation here about what, what, what exactly is it talking about um, my guess is that it's talking about lots of ash in the air that's Uh, that's darkening the sun during the day because there's ash in the air I I think so anyway so there will be so many of such bodies hitting the earth that John makes this analogy it's like a fig tree that casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind and so imagine a fig tree with many figs on it a great wind comes and they all fall down at once pat 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 so many many of these things falling all at once that's John's analogy Uh, for what he's seeing in his vision Uh, there's so many of these meteors striking the earth it's like a big wind came and all the figs fell down all at once Uh, and then we have a fifth disaster Um, because of man's perspective um, it it appears that it somehow affects the atmosphere Uh, man's perspective the sky appears to split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up I have no idea what that is. No idea. Uh, So uh, how does the sky roll up like a scroll? Um, You know, it's the human perception of the magnitude of this judgment, uh, but it's not the final dissolving of the heavens uh, which comes later Revelation chapter 1 it's described in Second Peter chapter 3 um, at the very end the heavens and the earth are going to be burned up with fire uh, but that's not this. This That's not yet. This is something different. Something people look... John looks at the sky and and he's trying to describe something that's indescribable and the only thing he can come up with, well, it looks like the sky is being rolled up like a scroll. And so what the sky rolling up like a scroll really is is really difficult to understand. Although we do have another uh, passage of scripture which has a similar description Um Isaiah 34 says all the hosts of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from a fig tree. So we have this passage from Isaiah about the sky rolling up like a scroll as well. So it's it's not new. Uh, in in Scripture, this sky rolling like a scroll, uh, but I still don't know what it means. The Scripture does that often. Jesus did in his earthly ministry. He took things that were familiar to his audience, and he used them to make illustrations. And so I think John's doing the same thing. He's seeing all these meteors hit, and he's thinking, well, what kind of a analogy can I make that, peop- that people that I'm writing to right now will understand? Well, everybody at the time he's writing has seen a fig tree and the wind blow and all the figs suddenly drop down. That's what I'll use. So so he's using something that's kind of familiar to the people that he's writing to. Uh, Returning his vision to events on Earth, John describes a sixth natural phenomenon, noting that every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And so um, this is a shifting of the ground. Again, this is like a giant earthquake, but now it's to the point where Uh, there's shifting of tectonic plates so that things are not exactly where they used to be now this happens on a small scale these days so in 2011 there was a huge earthquake uh, just off the coast of Japan that caused a tsunami and killed thousands of people and we can actually measure that Japan is now further from the United States than it was before that earthquake Uh, we can measure that but it's a really small distance uh, but we can measure that Japan's now a different distance from the United States than it was before that earthquake. Um, and that was an ordinary earthquake. Uh, so now imagine an earthquake that can move things to the point where the map's not quite right now. This earthquake's so big it moved things to, so that, such that the maps are not right anymore. Um, not just a few inches like we had with Japan and that, that little earthquake uh, that killed thousands of people. But, but this earthquake moves things around to the point where um, there, there are, are noticeable differences about where things are now than where they were before. Uh, mountains and islands are moved out of their places. Uh, the whole unstable crust of the earth begins to move and shift and it terrifies everyone. Uh, Things are moving around that are not supposed to move, um, but they are moving. Uh, So this is another uh, thing that's not normal. This is not normal. Uh, This is something that's spectacularly above and beyond things that we have seen uh, in the past. Uh, Then we get to, uh, the verse indicates the the kind of fear, the the palpable fear that occurs because of these unprecedented uh, incidents in this sixth seal. Um, It affects all the unbelievers. There are seven categories of people, um, uh, these classes of society, kind of the elites of society. The kings of the earth is the first one, referring to heads of the state throughout the world and then we 've got great men, magistanes, uh, the high ranking officials in government we 've got the commanders, the military leaders we 've got the rich, those who control commerce and business we 've got the strong, those who are influential and powerful, together they compromise the elite of society, the kings of the earth, the great men, the commanders, the rich, the strong. Um, uh, ironically, these are the very people who ignored the warnings of God's impending judgment and persecuted those who proclaimed the Lord. Yes, yes. I think they w- the, the preaching will include, look around you at these things that are happening. God's judgment is coming. Um, yes, I think they will definitely use illustrations from these things. Um, so neither political power, military authority, riches, or influence will exempt anyone from God's judgment but also notice that the common people the lower classes don't escape either every slave and free man will be as terrified as the influential and wealthy so if you're an unbeliever it doesn't matter where you are it doesn't matter whether you're a king or a slave you're not escaping God's judgment Uh, the reaction of the unbelieving world to the terrors unleashed by the sixth seal will not be one of repentance in general um, but of mindless panic so unbelievers react irrationally, foolishly, attempting to hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, the very places that are being shaken. So the mountains are being shaken, and let's run into the mountains. Uh, so irrational. So fear leads, this, this intense fear leads to irrational behavior. Uh, they're no doubt seeking refuge from these swarms of meteors that are falling. That's why they're going into the caves. Uh, But in light of the massive earthquake and its continuing aftershocks and other disturbance of the earth's crust, such hiding places will offer no safety. Further, it's impossible to hide from God or evade his judgment. Um, So speaking of rebellious Israel, God said, Though they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there will I bring them down. Though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. In other words, there's nowhere you can go uh, to escape God's hand. So they're, they're running into the mountains, and that's not gonna, they're not going to be able to hide from God in caves in the mountain. Uh, as the unbelievers frantically burrow into the earth in their futile attempt to hide themselves, they pray not to God, notice, but to nature. They pray to the mountains. Uh, they, they, they say to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. They don't cry out to God. They cry out to the mountain to fall on them too late they finally realize they've actually realized where this is coming from uh, him who sits on the throne um, that all these disasters have come upon them uh, are the result of God's wrath uh, there's, there's some realization of that now uh, but they don't cry out to God still unwilling and unable to repent they scream for the mountains and rocks to fall on them and crush them people will be so terrified that they would rather die than face the wrath of a holy God foolishly ignoring the fact that death will provide absolutely no escape from divine judgment uh, rather a casting into the lake of fire and so even death is they won't escape from God's judgment they they think well maybe if I just die I can escape but no they, they can't escape even in death from God's judgment so himlessness on the throne obviously refers to God we've seen that in um, uh, Revelation chapter 4 um, they will finally have to come to a clear understanding that God has been behind these judgments. That, that's who they need to hide from. They think they need to hide from. Uh, and then even more specifically, notice that they're fleeing from the wrath of the Lamb. Uh, so it's the presence of him who sits on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. So the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the agent of direct judgment here. The, the panic-stricken people of the world will recognize that the Lamb is the executioner of judgment they recognize that uh, the great day of the Lord which it says here that for the great day of their wrath has come so the great day of their wrath God and Christ is another term for the day of the Lord which we've seen many times in scripture and so the world will understand that this final wrath is coming and where it's coming from and so the reason why we can I think pretty confidently describe this day of their wrath as the day of the Lord is that the Old Testament passages which we've been looking at which describe in pretty good detail and, and, and very um, consistent with this sixth seal we have all these imageries in the Old Testament and all those imageries in the Old Testament that, uh, that are uh, right in line with the sixth seal also describe these things as happening in the day of the Lord. Um, and so that's why we we say that this uh, day of their wrath is the Old Testament day of the Lord, uh, which is described in Isaiah. Uh, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel Zephaniah, Malachi, many places in the Old Testament describe this day of the Lord and in many places we have uh, clear descriptions of exactly the same kind of things that are happening here in this sixth seal with the sun and the moon and the earthquake all of it together described as the day of the Lord in the Old Testament and here we have the day of their wrath and so I think those are the same things Uh, day of the Lord horrors precede the coming of the Lord and even anticipate the worst that is still yet to come so we still this is the sixth seal we still have the seventh seal and in the seventh seal are the seven trumpet judgments and the seven bowl judgments contained in that seventh seal that's still yet to come it's gotten really bad but it's not as bad as it's going to get still Um, and the scene closes here in chapter 6 with this rhetorical question who is able to stand Um, And the answer, of course, is no one. Uh, The prophet Nahum said, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? Uh, The ungodly will not be able to evade divine judgment um and so as as bad as it is it's not without hope the church has been delivered already before this and great multitudes of people will be saved in the midst of these terrors so people are still coming to the lord in spite of these these terrors uh but for the rest uh those who do not repent uh the sobering words of the writer of hebrews will apply it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So that's our lesson for today. I'm sorry I've run us out of time, so there's no time for questions. If you have questions, please email me or you can come up and, and ask me here at the end. Let's uh, close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together around your word. We thank you for our time of worship, which is coming up. And we pray, Lord, that in our uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that we will uh, we will offer worship that is pleasing in your sight and brings glory to your name. And we pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.